We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Thanks, Chris. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. I was in Florida with my in-laws, so you decide if that's a vacation. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, one of the things that I do when I'm on, I get to do when I'm on vacation is I usually get to spend some time with people um, that I love, like my family and my, some of our friends. I used to pastor in Panama City, and so that's where we were. And um, I also pay a little bit more attention to the news because I have a little bit more time to read stuff and whatever. And one, one of the impressions I have from that week, a couple weeks of being away, is, heavens, what a ponderous world we live in. Right? I mean, I, we're just getting in the car to drive and I uh, heard about the, uh, the shooting in Kenya, where the 100, 150 people murdered, just going to school. Um, huge fight in America over like how we're gonna live together as people um, with laws in Indiana and, and um, in Arkansas, obviously. There was, there's just a global volatility, whether the politics are Iranian or Ukrainian. It's, just, I mean, just things seem like, I'm 37, I'm gonna be 38 in a couple months. It's, it just feels like it's the most unstable it's, the world has ever been in my lifetime. Of course, that's probably not true because I was alive for some of the Cold War, but it just seems really odd. And then I was in Panama City during spring break. And so I was with some people from my former church that they're Christians, they're really nice people, you would really like them if you met them, and some of them are just gonna, they're just gonna implode their life. They just, they have a fatal flaw, they're not gonna face it, it's gonna wreck their marriage, it's gonna enormously hurt their children, and they're not gonna face it. And I'm just like, ah, why, why don't you just face it? And then I was in, as per during spring break, where thousands of college students descend upon the beaches to hurt themselves and each other. And I mean, just like shootings and drug arrests and, and most of the deaths, there had already been two deaths by the time I got there. Um, there's fire on the, I mean, it was just mayhem. And, um, and you know, it just makes me feel like this world needs a lot of awesome people. Just courageous, good, loving, clear-headed, disciplined people. It just, need, just needs a lot of them. And um, there's a couple of mythologies that I, I fear culturally a lot of us have believed in to, that would produce like a better society as like a shortcut to that. And um, one of them you could just call like the technocratic or bureaucratic fallacy, which is that if we just tweak the system enough, we'll have the right incentives and people will like straighten up and fly right. It, you know, if we just get all the incentives right, that is just false. Not only did a hundred million people lose their lives in our experiments with that in the last century, 
but it just, it doesn't work, and it, it really never has, and it doesn't seem like a great place to put our hope. But, and then the other, which you could call like the bohemian fallacy or the freedom fallacy or whatever, is this just like, if we would just let people be themselves more, um, everybody would be who they wanted to be, and then everybody would be good. And I'm, I don't have time to really sketch out an argument for why that's probably not right. I'll just say this now, that the phrase, letting it all hang out, is apt. Okay, when we're, when we're being ourselves, we're basically just what we are, and that doesn't create greatness. In fact, one of the things um, that you learn when you're a, st a student of the humanities is that basically every culture in the whole history of the world, all of its moral and, and religious philosophers have all known from time immemorial that the most difficult thing to produce in the world is a great person. It doesn't just happen. It never happens by coincidence. A person who is wise and good, full of character, strength, and discipline, full of courage rather than cowardice, that does not just happen. And it is extraordinarily uncommon. And one of the things that is really striking to me as I think about that is that when you read the first chapters of Acts, an enormous number of the human traits that just flat never happen are there in this new community and like with all kinds of people and it happens super fast. Um, I am actually, um, I know people think that I'm a fairly unfeeling person, but I actually am a terrible movie crier. Um, I watched a decently bad written and only okay directed and decently poorly acted movie this week and just about burst into tears four times. And <clears throat> the reason for that is, is that um, there's only a very predictable time when I will cry in a movie, and it's not when, like, Bambi's mother dies. I don't get attached to characters. They're all expendable in my view. The— <laughs> Here, here's the moment, the moment that I will most predictably break down in any film is when somebody does something that people never do. It's the moment, it's the self-sacrifice moment. It's the moment when somebody who was waffling decides to be courageous. It's the, you know, it's, it's that moment. It's when you realize that, that that parent was with that kid all along. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, and that gets me every time. And I look at the book of Acts in these first chapters and what it says about the early church and it's all those things in spades. And it's people who weren't those things two months previous. I mean, think about this. One of the things that you see so powerfully in the early church is courage. Persecution starts immediately. And yet, everybody abandoned Jesus when he got crucified, right? Everyone, except like three women, right? And John kind of snuck in there because he was like a teenager or something. But Peter's like, said anything to get out of being associated with Jesus. Less than two months later, he's like, look, kill me if you need to, do what you want, but listen, I'm going to obey God, not you. To the people who killed one of his best friends a little bit later, and would have been killed himself if God hadn't miraculously saved him a couple of times. Racial and intercultural divisions just Right? The first day of the church. People who speak different languages from radically different cultures of different races believe in Jesus, and they come together immediately in one 
family. And you're like, yeah, but that probably didn't last. Well, maybe, but by the time you get to Acts 13, which is years later probably, the church in Antioch, a city that was divided into 12 or 14 ghettos because none of the people of different cultures could be allowed to live with each other because they rioted constantly. The church had them all in it. It had numerous races in the leadership, and they were so multicultural that they couldn't be referred to as a Jewish sect anymore. They needed their own name. And it says in Acts that that's where they were first called Christians. Because that's the only thing that you could identify them all as. Generosity and hospitality. When Lord is praying before, he said, you know, some people aren't going to have, you know, a big family meal. And, you know, we want to pray for them. And I'm really glad he did pray for them. But, you know, my hope, my hope is, is that none of them would get out those doors still going to some meal alone. So, because we would be like the early church. That, like, people are just radical about inviting people into our privacy. People don't do that. People like their privacy. They like their space. The early Christians ate together in each other's home every day, sharing their food, enjoying each other's company. Even the weird ones. Right? And it said that the generosity people sold fields and homes. And they laid the money at the apostles' feet, and they said, distribute to the poor however you think is appropriate. Not only is that a crazy amount of generosity, it's a crazy amount of trust. To sell some major asset, and then just to give the money to whoever's in charge, and just be like, I trust you to do what's right with it. No accountability. Because they so trusted in the integrity of their leaders. Right? That is not normal. And yet, that was normal New Testament Christianity. And it didn't stop there. The church has actually always been like that. There's always been, there's always been religiosity. There's always been moralism. There's always been perversions of Christianity. Everybody likes to steal a good brand. But the, the core of people in the church who've always believed in the resurrection of Jesus and its meaning have always been powerfully transformed people. Always. And some examples of this um, in— some people tell, like to tell the mythology that Christianity was this kind of backwoods religion until Constantine, this emperor, finally decided he was going to make Rome Christian, and then it kind of went from there because it, you know, had state approval. That's not what happened. Constantine made Christianity the state religion because it was already feasible, because even under death sentence persecution, so many tens of thousands of people had come to Christ that it was politically feasible to say, let's be Christian. And the reason that happened was not because some emperor thought it would be nice, but because there were enormous problems in the Roman world. The best example of this was the, the second great plague in the third century. Rome was being invaded by outsiders it couldn't repel. There was civil war over who would rule the government. The Roman armies were actually fighting each other. There was the greatest depression of recent history that they had known of, and an enormous plague broke out. It was probably smallpox that was killing 5,000 people a day just in the city of Rome. Think about this. Imagine living in Madison, and there's some disease that's killing 5,000 people every single day, and we have half the population we have. How would you feel? It would be a ponderous moment, don't you think? And it wasn't true to the man or woman, but here's what— Tens of thousands of people saw. 
when smallpox would hit, the pagans would run. And they would carry smallpox somewhere else and kill another village of people in their selfishness. And the Christian bishops stood up and they said, we live for one who died for us. And the one command he gave us was that we should love our neighbor like ourselves. And none of us would wish to be abandoned in our sickness. Christians and pagans, here's the thing about the plagues, whether it's small box or bubonic plague, both of those plagues are diseases that if no one cares for you while you're sick, you're going to die. But if somebody cares for you while you're sick, the survival rates are like 75 or 80 percent. And so the people who were cared for survived at much higher rates, so much so that Emperor Julian blamed the Christians for starting the plague because fewer of them died. And you need to get used to this if you're going to be a Christian. The very things in our culture, societies, and families that we will give our lives to make better, we will be blamed for causing. That's just how power works. You just don't take it personally. But what happened was, is that tens of thousands of pagans looked at the worldview of paganism, and they looked at what the Christians did, and they came to Christ, to Christ by the thousands. And the religion that was, up until that point, predominantly women and slaves, reached every strata of society and transformed an empire until it became fashionable for even the powerful to believe. It, Christianity didn't win because it was some great philosophy. Christianity isn't a philosophy. It's belief in the implications of an event. God entered history, became a human, suffered, died, and rose again, gave his spirit to press forward his message of forgiveness and redemption. That's not a philosophy. That's just a fact. What transformed the intercontinental empire was the beauty, goodness, and power of the lives of the Christians. They ran towards the plague rather than fleeing it. And um, here's the funny thing. That's true now. Eric Metaxas, who was, uh, is a biographer of Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, two other enormously transformed Christians, one who stood up to Hitler and another who stood up for 40 years to the transatlantic slave trade. Metaxas writes about um, another Christian who last year demonstrated the strength of Christian faith by running towards the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Um, a guy named um, Stephen Roden. He's with Doctors Without Borders. He's actually criticized by people on both sides of the political spectrum in the, in the, in the press. But he was put in charge by some of the governmental organizations to do a job nobody in the right mind wants to do. It was his job to form a team that would go around and collect the bodies of people who had died of Ebola to remove them so that other people wouldn't get sick because Ebola is spread by contact, right? That's what he did. In fact, in one situation, he entered a home that was completely abandoned to recover the body of a four-year-old that was abandoned by the child's own family when they saw that the child had Ebola. And um, he was on NPR with Robert Siegel, and Siegel asked him, he said, listen, he said, he said, are you a religious man? And Roden replied, yes, I am. I'm a practicing Christian. And Siegel said, then did what you see test your faith? Right? Because it's awful. Right? 
Here's his response. He said, no, I got great strength from my faith and from the support of my family. Then Metaxas writes about this. He says, in a recent article in Slate, it acknowledged that many of the people fighting Ebola epidemic in West Africa were missionaries. The writer, a secular, I think atheist, Brian Palmer, admitted that, I don't feel good about the fact, I don't feel good about missionary medicine, even though I can't fully articulate why. Metaxas writes, he knew that he shouldn't feel this way, but he did. Russ Duthin of the New York Times, this is Metaxas writing, suspects that Palmer's misgivings have something to do with the fact that selfish, selflessness, the selflessness of the missionaries unsettles his secular and scientific worldview. In that worldview, helping people is what governments and secular groups are supposed to do. End quote. But Metaxas writes, but that's not how the world actually works. Palmer, like the emperor Julian the Apostate in the late 4th century, is seeing that the impious Galileans, that was what he called Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. It is enough to unsettle anyone's worldview. It's not just the ancient church. Right this minute, it's true. We just don't have the global media groups that are willing to tell us that story. It's not the story that people who aren't Christians are interested in. That's normal. But it's true. Now, one of the reasons why this can be helpful is is that the book of Acts is structured in a way so that when we see something amazing in it, in its narrative of what happened, it doesn't leave us without the ability to understand why. The way the book of Acts is structured is it's a narrative about what happened, but inserted within that narrative is 19 sermons. And they're interspersed through the book so that there would be content telling us why the thing is happening or how it's happening or what's motivating that it's happening. And when we look at why this is happening, what created this in these people? It's, it's really clear. It's two things about the resurrection. And that is, hold on, I gotta skip here. And that is that they believed and proclaimed the fact of the resurrection, and two, they connected the fact of the resurrection with its meaning. Those are both really important. Because when we talk about transformation, which is just how I'm applying the message this morning, the resurrection is actually the fuel and the foundation and the fountain of where Christian transformation comes from. You cannot experience, you can experience a certain kind of psychological change by believing in certain tenets of Christian faith. There's lots of ways people make changes. But you actually can't experience the full weight and depth and effect of Christian transformation without believing deeply in the fact of the resurrection. It just doesn't work that way. Now, there's something you might be saying, wait a second, hold on there, Tiger. Um, fact. Right? Uh, well, here's the thing. What else is it? It is something that's either true or false. That's a fact. Right? It's not a value. It's a claim, right? It's not an interpretation. It's not even a, it's not even mythology. It's either true or it's false. It's a fact. It's a falsifiable claim. And the early, even though some modern writers who don't believe in the resurrection have tried to utilize the resurrection by calling it a kind of moral mythology, nobody believed that in the biblical times or throughout the vast majority of Christian history. 
In, in the, this text, in fact, in the text that Chris read, Peter refers to himself as a witness twice and says that he testifies twice. Now, in the Christian church, sometimes we'll say that we witness to somebody or that I have a testimony. Have you ever heard that? Like, I gave my testimony, blah, blah, blah. What that means, usually in the modern church, is like, well, I told somebody about why I believed in Jesus and what that's meant for me and so on. Or we say, um, I witnessed to somebody. That is, I told somebody about Jesus. That's not how they mean it. When they use the word witness and testimony, they use it the way it's normally used. That is, a witness is somebody who sits in court and tells everybody present what they have seen, heard, and experienced as a, they give testimony that is evidence of what they've seen, heard, and experienced so that other people can know it too and live according to its significance, which in most cases is to find somebody guilty or innocent, right? That is how they portray the resurrection of Jesus. They don't say, I have this philosophy, or I'd like to share this moral mythology with you. They say, we are witnesses— and we are testifying to the fact that this happened. And here's what you need to realize. This is not auxiliary. This was the absolute heart of the apostolic message of Christianity and must still be today. Everything in the entire Christian faith comes back to the resurrection. In fact, there's only 19, there's 19 sermons in the book of Acts, which I would say only, that's kind of a lot of sermons, right? But there are more than—there are almost exactly 40 references in those 19 sermons to the resurrection. It's a bit of a theme. But one of the things that is important to recognize is that the apostles did not stop there. It is not enough to believe that the resurrection happened. Right? Haven't you met people that believe, that if you say, do you believe in God? And they go, yeah. And you go, yeah, so? Like, what's significant about that? And they're like, um, I don't know what you mean. Like, it's almost like a, it's a weird idea that believing in God would matter to somebody's normal daily life. They'd be like, well, there might be some kind of heaven or something, and I don't know. And you're like, oh, okay, so you believe it, but it doesn't really matter. Or that can happen with a resurrection. Somebody could believe, just generally speaking, do you think Jesus rose from the dead? And they're like, well, I grew up Lutheran, so yeah. And, and then you might say, so doesn't it change everything? And they're like, okay, you're religiously weirding me out here, right? And part of the reason for that is that to the apostles, it was so incredibly important to link together that the resurrection is with what the resurrection means. Think about it this way for a minute. Have you ever, like, either wondered or asked, had somebody ask you, okay, if Jesus rose from the dead and he's all, like, all bigot-beating death, why didn't he just, like, appear to more people? Right? I mean, if he could appear to, like, the apostles, why couldn't he just levitate among the, above the entire city of Jerusalem and let, like, tens of thousands of people see it? I mean, wouldn't that be more helpful? There's a couple answers to that. The first answer is, well, it says in 1 Corinthians he appeared to more than 500. So, like, at what point is it enough? Right? The Old Testament says that something can be substantiated on the basis of testimony with two or three witnesses at most. There's 500. I mean, how many do you need? Is 50,000 actually more, better than 500? Maybe, but, like, it gets redundant after a while. But more importantly than this, 
Peter actually addresses this in his first sermon to Gentiles, to his first sermon to non-Jews. Non-Jews might be like, wait, why is this all happening in Jerusalem? And what, how, how come we didn't get to see it? Like, they can kind of feel left out. Like, we're 2,000 years later. We might feel left out, right? But Peter actually says exactly why he believes, exactly why Jesus told him that was the case. And it's right here in this passage. He says, we, that is the, these, the apostles, are witnesses of everything he, Jesus, did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They, the Jewish leaders, killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He, that's Jesus risen, was not seen by all the people, that's all the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. Well, on what criteria did God choose? By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So wait, that's a little arbitrary. If you scheduled in Starbucks with Jesus after he'd risen from the dead, you get to be a witness? Like, it doesn't make sense until you actually go and read what happened at those meals, which are recorded in Luke and Acts. And what happened is Jesus explained the significance of everything. He brought it all together so that the people who are going to testify to having seen him alive as a fact would actually understand the significance of that fact and that those two things would never get separated. That's the point. You see, if Jesus just ascends over all Jerusalem and everybody sees him, but nobody tells them what it means, everybody can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You could, you could have 75 different religions or non-religions or self-help groups start out of that thing. I mean, who knows? But you see, what Jesus actually wanted was he wanted to actually sit down with the people who saw him raised and say, okay, let's start with Genesis. I mean, it literally says this in Luke 24. He starts with Genesis and Moses and the prophets. He goes through the whole Bible and explains to them how it all, what it all means, what his life, death, and resurrection means. Now that he's raised, he's going to rise, and then this is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses. He explains all that to them so that there would never be a doubt what it means. So that you and I could go through life Living in that meaning, and that meaning being supported by the solid rock foundation of the fact. So what's the meaning? Well, the meaning's right there, right? There's two things right there in that text. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that, right? He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. One. And two, all the prophets testify about him, that's Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So there's, there's two things. Now, there are actually 50,000 implications of the re resurrection, but all of them actually flow from these two things. One, that in the resurrection of Jesus, God shows that the risen Jesus is the judge, not you. Is that offensive? Right, what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus? Now, spiritually, we know that, that is God used that as an atonement for our sins. But humanly speaking, that's not what humanity was seeking to accomplish in crucifying Jesus. What happened in that was a group of people decided they disapproved of Jesus and they condemned him. So then what was the resurrection? You see, the resurrection was a reversal of that judgment. It was to declare that the human judgment of God in Christ was unjust and wrong and rejected, and that the one who is the judge is the risen Christ, 
who stands over death and is himself God and will judge every human, even the humans that think they get to sit in judgment on him. And that is the fundamental basis of all of reality. Now, here's the thing. That is extraordinarily, amazingly fantastic news and received as such by almost no one. <laughs> right? And that's why the second point follows close behind it, so that you can receive the first as good news, which is this, that for all of that impending judgment that we deserve from the judge, he himself has made the capacity and way for us to be pardoned of all of that, so that we don't stand condemned, but we stand in relationship to the one who judges all things which is a great place to be. And it comes only by believing. And listen, I know some people are like, look, I don't like that Christian faith because you're like, all you gotta do is believe. All you gotta do is believe. Well, what the heck are you supposed to do with a fact? Right, I mean, it's like, what, how are you gonna earn a fact? You're like, well, I, I feel like people should be good. Well, that's not what's real. What's real is, is that God said two things are true. How do you earn that? You don't earn that. You believe that. It's news. It's a fact. It's a claim. It's testimony. The only thing you can do is accept it or reject it. That's just the way it is. It's not—it isn't even God arbitrarily deciding that we should be saved on the basis of faith. Reality dictates—logic dictates that salvation must be that way. Now, some of you are hearing that, and you're like, that's—yes. I love to hear that every time. But I know that there's probably some people who are going to be like, okay, Nick, I was really hoping that I would come here and you would be like with it enough to not be all religious and that you would say something relevant. And I just don't know why you have to be in this like antediluvian religiousness thing. And I wish you would say something relevant to me and relevant to the world that we live in. And I understand that attitude. I think it's a bad attitude. But I understand the attitude. Right? I say that a lot because I have a— I, I, Never mind, I won't pick on my family. <laughs> So I, let, me, let me say two things about that quickly. The first is this. It's only irrelevant if it's not true. You see, if you presume that it's in fact false, that Jesus is King and Lord and Creator and all of that and stands in judge of all people and has offered forgiveness to all humanity, if you think that's false, then yeah, you're not going to think it's very interesting. I get that. But that's only true if it's false. If it's true, nothing could be more relevant. If God is King and judge and creator, then he defines everything that we are and everything in our life in every relationship to everything else in every possible way. And once you recognize that, you'll realize you've screwed up quite a bit. And the idea of receiving forgiveness and being in relationship to that God who created everything and you sounds great. And you might be like, well, it doesn't feel relevant. Well, neither does food after you've eaten. The fact that it doesn't feel relevant just might mean that it doesn't feel immediate, right? Like, I'm not hungry right now. I had a turkey in my office between services. I'm fine, right? <laughs> not a turkey. But I did have bacon for breakfast, and I'm still good, okay? But the point is, is like, I'm not hungry. That doesn't mean when dinner comes, I'm not gonna be. And sometimes it is the immediacy of life and when something doesn't feel immediate, it doesn't feel relevant. And that is actually not right. That's not reasonable. It's just on the basis of we're embodied people and this is what we feel like and blah, blah, blah. But I think just as importantly as that, if you're coming from, if you'll go with me on the deal that like we need better people in the world, and you're like, yeah, but you Christians are the worst. Just hang with me for a second, okay? 
Um, I've been doing a bunch of studying on early childhood development to work with some other churches to help with some of the achievement gaps we've had in Madison with certain groups. And one of the things that comes up again and again, almost every um, childhood and adult psychologist will say, in order to have functional humans, you absolutely need two things. Every human being to be, to be functional absolutely needs two things. And every child, in order to achieve, absolutely needs two things before you can teach them to read. They have to have these other things. And they're very clear. It's identity and security. Identity and security. It's one of the reasons why adoption is so hard, right? Every study says that adoptive, adoptive parents have an extraordinarily more difficult time than parents who are together and parenting their own children. Why? Is it because adoptive parents are worse parents? No, oftentimes they're better. They just want more kids. They love kids. Probably better than me, right? But here's the thing. How do you overcome insecurity and identity wounds that come from not being with both of your immediate parents? Right? But listen, there is one thing that is deeper even than the deepest human bond, which is the parental bond. There's only one thing, and that is having identity and security in the one who created you. The one who knitted you together in your mother's womb. The one who has known you from before you existed. The one who knows your end. The one who has suffered all things for you. The one who can raise the dead. The one who can forgive all sins. You see, many, if not all, of the sins and the self-destruction and the carnage, whether it's tacky insecurity that comes out in gossip at the office, to the wars we fight to kill each other, flow from a fundamental human problem. And we try to fill it with lots of different things to secure ourselves and to identify ourselves. But you were not created to find your security and your identity in anything but Christ. And so all these things work a little bit until things get bad, but there was one group of people who, devoured by lions, looking Ebola and smallpox in the faith, said, face, said, loving my neighbor is more important than surviving. And it has been a testimony of fact to the world for 2,000 years. And that is that when one believes in the fact and the meaning of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, really. And people work that into their character and their discipline and their hopes and their dreams. They face their insecurities with it and they understand their identity around it. When that happens, people like you wouldn't believe break out of the husks of very small-minded people. And it is remarkable how fast it sometimes happens that cowardice turns to courage, that stinginess turns to generosity, that miserly privacy turns to open-armed hospitality, to suspecting every other, <laughs> to going to the prisons every Thursday. to mistrusting the poor, to trying to figure out how you can actually help them, 
to distrusting the rich, <laughs> to finding out whether they became rich because they were productive or because they cheated before you hate them. Those things happen because God created us so that there could be nothing more psychologically, spiritually, morally, and socially relevant to the actual production of human greatness that is needed in the most, in the, our times, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in the family you are in or will create, whether it is in the community that you live in or the world that God has placed you in in your generation. There is nothing more relevant than that. And we Christians for 2,000 years have had a have had a ritual by which we symbolize people entering into that security and identity. Our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, our security in knowing that we have been cleansed from sin and that we can live to and for Christ, and we call it baptism, it's very complicated. We, duck, we dunk people underwater. But it symbolizes their death to an old identity and their life in a new identity. It symbolizes the death they are going to die, but the resurrection that they will experience in Christ as he died and was raised. And it's in water partly to symbolize the cleansing that comes when Christ regenerates, justifies, and forgives someone. And he gets to do that because he's the judge. And so, um, it's not as much fun to celebrate with people who enter into that when you don't know their stories. And so for a few minutes, we're gonna watch um, a video with some of the stories of the people who are gonna be baptized, and then we're gonna baptize them, and then we're gonna sing, and then we're gonna leave, hopefully really encouraged. And some of you don't really like coming to church. You might have gotten dragged here. And that's cool. It's Easter. That happens all the time. I'm glad you were a good sport about it. I hope you will continue to be. Um, but let me say, say something about faith and about Christian faith. It's not flashy. It isn't flashy. It's organic. It grows like a plant slowly over time. And if you come and you be like, show me the money. You know, like if the, yeah, your attitude is like, it better be flashy. It better be now. I better see it all. I better walk in there and everybody better be awesome. You're just not going to see it. That's not how gardens grow. You have to keep coming. You, gotta, you need to come for five months. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just the way life is. You don't see the character transformation. You don't see people really for who they are. You don't understand it until you enter into the relationship. You don't learn until you first enter in a little bit. It just doesn't work. And so if, if you—it's very easy to write off anything. But if you really want to see the character of what Christ does in those who believe in the resurrection and its meaning, you've got to be here a little bit. And we want to invite you to be part of this community more, or at all. So let me pray, and then we'll watch this. Father, I pray that as we um, heard this and watched the video and so on, I pray that for those of us who are believers, that you would cause us to incredibly rejoice to see people come to trust you. And I pray for those who are watching, I pray that you just help them see um, from the outside in what your community is like and what we believe and how we seek to serve each other and honor you and respond to the truth and figure out what faith means in our moment. 
And I pray that you would make us like this, the people in early acts, that we would never let ourselves off the hook by what we see around us, but would see Christ and who he is and who he showed himself to be and that he would ever be our only goal of character and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.